How's everyone's week been okay? Yes, Miss Ebbs? Hello, Captain. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Wonderful. Lovely to see you. How's everything going? Good. It's going. So I have one question about, um, there was a question, you have a patient whose blood pressure is 142 over 70, and it was a four different answers. So I put only oxygen, but the answer was oxygen and elevate his legs. So in my head, if you elevate the, his head, which is going to make his blood go to the heart, which is increase his blood pressure, but his blood pressure is already within normal range. Why would you elevate his legs? Michelle, I don't have the question in front yeah, of me. I have it here. So it's that 48-year-old male found supine on his sofa. His wife informs you that he felt dizzy, sat down. Ah, the cardiogenic shock one? Yeah, and then she's talking about um, what is the appropriate course of action? Apply the AED, administer oxygen, BN12, uh, leader non-rebreather, take postural vital signs, and then elevate his legs six to 12 inches. And the yes. correct answer is um, two and four, which is uh, administer the oxygen and elevate his legs because of the cardiogenic shock. Because the big problem here is not his blood pressure, but that his heart rate isn't sufficient to perfuse his brain. So mm -hmm. even though his blood pressure is fine, He's confused, he keeps passing out. So what we wanna do is lay him down mm -hmm. so the blood goes to his brain. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Thank you. No problem. Just wait a couple of more moments. I think we almost have a quorum. Yeah, we're still waiting on a couple stragglers. What time did we say we would take the quiz down? Uh, it went down at um, 7.31. That way, the if you were having any trouble logging in, you had the full half hour. Cool. Well, I will get started in a minute or so. Yeah, we're at about... 45. So if we just give them, like I said, we had um, only one not take the quiz. So we should have 49 of them. So just some quick housekeeping. We do want to remind everybody that the makeup for test two will be Saturday. So don't forget that if you need it. I know that Captain Salfidi has already notified those of you that are eligible. So we have that. And also, a couple of you have expressed a um, concern or confusion since uh, school has been shut down for the year. What does that mean to us? Uh, unless you're in middle school, it means absolutely nothing. 
Um, pretty much what it boils down to is that's the school system, but as soon as we're able to congregate, we will be up and running. So, of course, that is a more, shall we say, vague uh, situation. So once we're able to, to get together, we are going to get together because we miss you. This isn't the same. Looking at your smiling faces and a little mosaic tile on my computer screen, it's not the same unless I can see you and, and engage with you and smell the fear. It's not the same. All right, so let's get started. When we last met, we were talking about head and spinal injury. Does anyone have any questions about that material before we finish the last bit of trauma above the neck or trauma above the clavicles? Uh, yep. You do have a question Ooh. there. Mr. Liu. Yes, so I just thought of this question last night. So you remember that picture of that individual that had the very serious laceration across his face? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I was just wondering, like, how would you perform an assessment for that particular kind of individual? Like, I would imagine that palpating the zygomas and anything below would be, I don't want to say unnecessary or trivial, but is that, like, still one of the things that you still have to do while performing a primary survey? Well, I mean, it's pretty obvious that he's got sustained a substantial mechanism of injury to his, to his squat. You still need to do some sort of assessment. You need to you know, assess his pupils if you can gain access to them. But you would still palpate, but you don't need to spend a whole lot of time on that. I mean, the, the, whole, the whole assessment should only be taking you about 45 seconds to a minute. So, sure. you know, so get to the head, head, throw the collar on, move your way down. Does he have anything? Is it, what's his belly like? You know, that's got to keep things moving. Right. So yeah, I would assess his head. I would palpate his face, but I'm going to keep things moving. I'm not going to get sucked into that. But you wouldn't be like, okay, so I'm doing his zygoma, his maxilla, his mandible. Just you're going to be like, not as I guess touchy, so to say. No, I touch it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, it's cool. It's all crunchy and everything. <laughs> okay, but aren't you like? I guess concern would be the word if you're like maybe touching the wrong spot. I think he's already been touched in the wrong spot. Okay. I think, uh, so I think that, I think that horse has left the barn. So you do want to palpate it. You don't have to be rough about it, but you do want to have a sense as to what's there. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Sound good? Yep. Okay. Other questions? All right, so let's talk about um, stuff to the eye, ear, and nose, those of you that like ENT stuff. So we're going to uh, talk first a little bit about the nose because it's not really all that interesting. When you take a look at how the nose is structured, um, you, of course, have your nares and you breathe in and you enter into the nasopharynx, the nasal cavity here. And the thing that's interesting about the nasal cavity is it has these ridges called turbinates. And these turbinates are very vascular. They're very vascular. They're also lined with hairy goblet cells. And that gives you an idea as to what's going on in there. 
Um, the hair traps particulate matter. The goblet cells produce mucus, um, and the and the blood flow there warms and humidifies the air that you breathe. So that it's it when it goes into your into your airway, it doesn't dry it out and doesn't make it too cold. But the other thing to bear in mind as you look at this cutaway, you can see that the bone right here at the um, at the top or the uh, the ceiling of the nasopharynx and the skull is very, very thin. And you also have these sinuses, the frontal sinus and the ethmoid and sphenoid sinuses right here. And again, the bone is pretty thin there. So any blow or blunt force trauma to the front of the face can cause some nasal fractures, obviously. Um, but also, if you're bleeding back, back here, this bleeds a lot. So it's very, very vascular. So now you got to worry about airway issues. And anytime you have a frontal blow like that, we talked about Lafort fractures, um, you have to worry about fracturing that cribriform plate, that basal or bone. And now you end up with basically a fracture to the floor of your skull. So you always have to be a little bit concerned about that that frontal impact as Mr. Liu so correctly expressed concern about regarding our friend who got beat with the ugly stick. So when you fracture these bones that are that separate the, the nasopharynx and the nasal cavity from the skull, from the cranium itself, remember that there's cerebral spinal fluid bathing the brain. Now that stuff can leak out. So when you have CSF coming out of the nose, then we're thinking that the basilar bone right here has been fractured and that's why it's leaking out. If you do see this clear fluid coming out, we're not gonna pack the nose. All we wanna do is cover the nostrils as we mentioned earlier to prevent contamination. If CSF can come out, bacteria can get in and we wanna make sure that that doesn't happen. Questions about that. Okay. While you're getting your face pummeled, not only might you fracture your skull, unfortunately, but more likely um, you're going to have an epistaxis. And we already talked about epistaxis when we talked about injuries. Uh, I just want to quickly mention again that when you have epistaxis, um, dry sterile dressing is the way to go. We're not going to pack anything into the nose, okay? Um, but when you talk about dealing with the nose itself, just dry sterile dressings. And if you need to try to slow the bleed, remember that you have a couple of options. You can pinch the nose shut. I would have the patient do that. Pressure to the upper gum will reduce blood flow into the, um, into the nasal cavity. And a cold pack really works nicely to cause vasoconstriction and minimize swelling. Sometimes epistaxis after a blow to the face can confound the whole issue of is there CSF mixed in with that? Because usually you end up with a mix of blood and CSF. We're not going to get all caught up in trying to figure that out because of our ETAs to hospitals um, being so short. But if you do have a longer ride and you have a moment, you can certainly dip a little corner of a four by four gauze pad um, into the bloody mix, or so you think. Just set that aside. 
Um, if it is CSF mixed with blood, the CSF will flow faster um, along the uh, fibers and you'll end up with this little red dot surrounded by a clear corona. See what I did there? Um, and that indicates that the CSF has separated from the blood and you know that there's CSF in that mixture. But again, that's an interesting little party trick you can do if you have a long ride to the hospital. You're much more likely to have other things you have to do. But if you needed to know whether or not that was a bloody CSF mix, that's how you would do it. Questions about got your nose? Yuck, 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 yuck. Nope, okay. Let's talk about ears. When we talk about the structure of the ear, we divide the ear up into the outer um, or external ear, the middle ear and the inner ear. The outer ear really consists of everything before you get to the eardrum, okay? So the, e, the external part of your ear, the auricle, okay? Um, the soft tissue that makes up the, the opening, the, the pinna, uh, the ear canal itself, as well as the eardrum or the tympanic membrane. Those are all parts of your external ear. The auricle itself, the external most manifestation of your ear, is mostly cartilage. Um, obviously, it does have a blood supply, but it, it's more of a, of a rigid um, connective tissue than it is anything else. As a result, it, won't bleed, it doesn't bleed all that vigorously. The middle ear is rather interesting. It starts with the tympanic membrane. Um, and there, after that, you've got your three, um, three of the smallest bones in your body, the malleus, the incus, and the stapes, which are also known as the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrups. And that's because of their shape. You take a look at the, at the malleus, it looks like a, a hammer here, handle with a hammer. And the incus, the middle bone, looks like an anvil and the stapes looks like stirrups. That makes up the um, middle ear. The middle ear is connected to your sinuses through a tube called the eustachian tube. And that is why um, when you have your ears popping or you have divers squeeze, pinching your nose and trying to equalize the pressure works. The inner ear, is made of some pretty interesting and sophisticated um, components. You have the portion here that looks like a snail. That's called the cochlea. The cochlea is filled with fluid. In addition, you have these interesting semicircular canals that are set in di at different angles, at different planes. These also play a role um, in balance and position. Um, inside your semicircular canals, you have um, little, pro um, little projections that have hairs on it with little crystals. And really what it does is, and it's bathed in fluid, and based on your position, those fibers shift back and forth. And that's what tells you what position you're in, whether you're laying down, standing on your head, or whatever. The cochlea is attached to a nerve, your auditory nerve, 
And what happens when you hear something, sound waves enter and are directed down your ear canal and set the tympanic membrane vibrating based on frequency and amplitude. So based on the wavelength of the, of the sound and how loud it is, the amplitude of the sound, that tympanic membrane vibrates. When it vibrates, it starts vibrating these three bones, your malleus, your incus, and the stapes. Those begin to vibrate. And that sets the fluid in your cochlea a vibrating. And that sends impulses to your auditory nerve. And your auditory nerve picks up the vibrations as far as their frequency, their amplitude, um, and all the characteristics that we associate with sound sends that up to your brain and your brain processes it and now you're hearing okay so questions about the structures involved in your ear okay. all right so as far as injuries go ear injuries traumatic ear um ear injuries can um usually don't bleed a whole lot, especially if they involve the external ear. Because it's mostly cartilage, okay, paging Mike Tyson, paging Mike Tyson, um, it's not going to bleed a whole, whole lot. It can't be too soon for that. That was decades ago. And so now you see that there's a chunk of ear that's been ripped off of this gentleman. So when we're talking about dressing some sort of injury like this, what we wanna do is we wanna put a dry sterile dressing for the most part, um, I mean a moist sterile dressing um, on the ear. And we also want to put it behind the ear so that it is behind the ear and the scalp so they don't stick together. And then we just want to wrap that, wrap that, um, wrap that up. When you wrap someone's head, you never want to go over the chin and over the neck. So we're going to wrap from the forehead down to the occiput this way. All right. And that'll be fine. Um, sometimes um, people or foreign bodies will find their way into an ear. Can you think of a patient population that's going to shove things into their ears or their nose? You want to have kids at home? shove things up there. Um, we're not going to try to remove it. We'll just let the doctor take care of that. Um, every once in a while, we'll, we'll get a call where a cockroach has entered someone's ear. I mean, that can cause a lot of discomfort. I know, really. Just think about those sharp little legs scratching on your eardrum. I know. So if you want to have a little bit of fun with your patient, if they're being something of a pain in the butt, just tell them you're going to shine a light in your in their other ear to scare it out. And if you're sitting there wondering if that will really work, then we need to have another talk. So if there's a foreign body in there, we're not going to take anything. We're not going to no, manipulate it. Questions about ear injuries? All right. So let's talk about the eye. And the eye is way more complicated. When you take a look at the structure of the eye, the eye is a globe about an inch in diameter. It sits in your orbit, um, protected by the bones of your forehead, 
your, your frontal bone, your temporal bone, nasal bone, zygoma, lots of other smaller bones back in there. Um, and the portion of your eye that you see is really only a, a, percent, a small percentage of it because most of it is really behind in the eye socket. The globe is divided up into two chambers. You have the anterior chamber of the eye and the posterior chamber of the eye. The anterior and posterior chambers of the eye are separated or divided by the lens, the lens of the eye. The anterior chamber is filled with a clear liquid called aqueous humor, and you are always producing and reabsorbing aqueous humor. The posterior chamber of the eye, which is the larger chamber of the eye, is the chamber of the eye that gives the globe its substance, its mass, is filled with a gel-like substance called vitreous humor. And the vitreous humor is much like the aqueous humor in that it is clear, um, but is more, more viscous than, um, than the aqueous humor. The aqueous humor is way more water-like and runny, and the vitreous humor is thicker, almost gel-like. Covering your eye is connective tissue called the sclera. The sclera is the white portion of your eye as you look at your eye in the mirror. Um, the sclera has got blood vessels in it. It's tissue like any other tissue. But the sclera is what makes up the, the outer layer of your eye. It kind of keeps everything in and gives your eye ball, if you will, the globe, its support. In the front of the eye, in the front of the eye, um, the sclera um, changes and becomes the cornea. And the cornea is the specialized tissue that covers the pigmented portion of your eye. So it covers your iris and it covers your pupil. And that's really the opening of the eye. That's where light comes in. So the sclera pretty much blocks light. It's just this, this um, fibrous covering to the globe of your eye, but the cornea is clear and allows light to enter the eye itself through the cornea, um, heading in past the lens um, to, into the vitreous humor, into the, into the posterior chamber. Questions about those structures? Cool. There are other structures there. We already mentioned the iris. The iris is the colored portion of your eye. Um, the iris is what controls the size of your pupil. So there are muscles associated with your iris. And when you talk about your pupil dilating, your iris is actually contracting. It's pulling away, creating a bigger opening. When your pupil constricts, that's the iris actually relaxing and causing the pupil to get smaller. So obviously we sense the amount of light in the ambient um, atmosphere or in the, in the room, and now our pupil will dilate, or more correctly, your iris will contract or relax based on the amount of light, and that will cause your pupil to either dilate or constrict. The pupil is actually just the hole, the aperture, if you will, for your eye.
<clears throat> from there, we have the lens, and the lens is what focuses the light that's being reflected off of an object um, onto the movie screen of your eye. So the lens is located pretty much between the posterior and anterior chambers of the eye. And as light passes through the cornea and enters the, um, through the pupil, it hits the lens. And now the lens is going to focus that light or the image that is being reflected off of the object um, onto the back of your eye. The lens is held in place by a series of, of, muscles, and of muscles and ligaments. Um, and that really, that kind of affects the shape of your eye, uh, of your lens. And as you get older, your lens or your, your lens can start to get thicker or your cornea can actually get thicker as well. From there, we have the retina. The retina is the movie screen. The retina is the sensory organ. The retina is a series of nerve endings that are going to be stimulated by the light being reflected off of whatever it is you're looking at. So based on the brightness of the light that's being reflected, based on the color, um, what wavelengths are being absorbed and what wavelengths are being transmitted. Your nerve impulses send are, are, are firing um, and send out those, that message up to your brain where you interpret that as being red or green or dark or light or whatever. So the retina is the sensory part of the eye. The retina is actually a continuation of the optic nerve. The optic nerve enters the eye globe, the globe of the eye, <clears throat> from the posterior aspect of the globe. The optic nerve comes out of your brain through two holes in your eye sockets and your orbits and go into your and goes into your each goes into your um, your globe. And then the optic nerve fans out and creates the retina, okay? And that's what's going to send those impulses to your brain for interpretation. There's a special layer of tissue between the sclera and the retina called the choroid. The choroid layer's job is to make sure that the retina is well perfused and happy. So really what it does is it provides a, a, a conducive environment for the retina to maintain retinal health, okay? Questions about the structures of the eye so far? The retina is the part of the eye that um, is stimulated by the, the light. So it is the sensory part of the eye. It actually is what is stimulated when you're seeing something. Okay. There are a couple of other interesting structures associated with the eye. If you take a look at this picture, you can see that up in the superior aspect of your um, orbit, 
you have what are called lacrimal glands. Lacrimal glands are your tear glands. Your tear glands are exocrine glands. They are ducted glands. So your lacrimal glands produce tears and they come out through tear ducts and bathe your eye and keep your eye moist and get anything that has been stuck to the surface of your eye out. Covering your eye itself, covering the, the entire eye, if you will, and the lower lid and the upper lid is a membranous tissue called the conjunctiva. So the conjunctiva starts with the upper eyelid, goes underneath the eyelid, covers your eye itself, the anterior portion of your eye, and then covers the lower eyelid. And that's a protective measure, and it also helps keep that eye nice and moist. So we have lacrimal glands that are producing tears. They're bathing your conjunctiva. And then from there, you get drainage of the tears through the nasolacrimal duct into your nose. This is why when you're watching that really sad movie and you're crying, your nose runs because everything drains from your eye into those, that, those ducts into your nose. You might recognize the conjunctiva. As I said, it's the soft tissue that covers your eye and the eye, inside of the eyelids. When that is inflamed, either by um, an infection or by some sort of exposure, for instance, you might have an inflammation of the conjunctiva, which is known as conjunctivitis. Okay, so conjunctivitis can be environmental, right? Or it can be infectious. And it's also known as pink eye because it gets all red and inflamed. All right, so questions about those structures. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about what goes wrong. Captain, there is that question there. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it says you may have said this. Do you see the uh, in the chat? Yes. So um, the purpose of tears are to keep your eye moist, right? You don't want your eye drying out. So you're constantly producing tears. You're not even aware of it, and it's cleansing your eye. Now you cry because you're a wuss. Because, no, I'm <laughs> kidding. Because you're a sensitive man of the 21st century. No, you cry because you cry. It's an expression of, of sadness. Why do we cry? Because we're, we're human, because we need to be in touch with our, with our inner soul. No, it's not working? Okay. Pink eye con um, in conjunctivitis can be infectious if it's caused by an infection. Um, you could have red eyes because they're irritated and you're rubbing them all the time. But usually when you're talking about um, conjunctivitis where you're getting all that kind of pussy preolent kind of production, that is con um, contagious and that's usually caused by either a bacterial or a viral infection. Okay. As for why do we cry when we're sad? I don't know. I don't cry. All 
All right, well, enough of that. Let's talk about what goes on when things go wrong. So by far the most common eye injury we're going to see um, is a foreign body or a foreign object on the surface of the eye. So we see this all the time when we uh, are um, at, for instance, athletic events or at a fire standby where there's a lot of smoke and soot and particulates get in the eye and it's irritating. Um, or maybe you're doing some gardening and stuff gets in, the, gets in your eye. Pretty much this is one of those things that can be handled by the patient at home most of the time. But sometimes we'll get called if it, for whatever reason, um, the particulate is, fair, is stubborn and stuck in there. So usually you'll see a reddening of the eye because of the irritation, um, tearing, so you're going to be producing more tears to try to wash that, um, that particulate out of the way. The danger with any sort of foreign matter on your eye is that um, if it gets stuck, for instance, underneath your eyelid um, or it gets stuck and you're rubbing it, you can scratch your cornea. And when you scratch your cornea, um, it's very, very painful. Um, you tend to tear even more. You may have um, become very photosensitive. Light hurts your eye. You kind of have to wince and keep it shut. Um, so there are a lot of things that can go wrong. Um, if the cornea is, is severely abraded, um, it might change your vision a bit. Things may look very blurry because you have that rough surface instead of the nice smooth surface of your cornea. Corneal, abrasion, corneal abrasions usually heal fine. Um, usually um, the doc will put some ointment on there um, to keep it, um, to keep the infection away and um, put a uh, patch over it to give it a rest. But certainly um, it, it, while not a serious injury, it's a very, very uncomfortable injury. Um, can you scratch your cornea to the point where it causes permanent damage? Sure, the scar tissue can develop. But for the most part, um, it's not a significant long-term sort of injury. When you're examining someone's eye because they called us and they're saying, ow, my eye has something in it, I can't rub it, I keep rubbing it, it won't come out, whatever. You wanna make sure that, you're, that you get a good look at the eye itself. And if you can see particulate matter on there, that's great, then some irrigation, we'll talk about that in a minute, works. But again, if you can't see anything, it actually might be stuck underneath the eyelid. Um, if you have something stuck under the eyelid, then every time you blink, it's gonna start rubbing up and down against your eye. And that's very irritating. So one of the things we might do, if we're not getting the results that we seek when we irrigate the eye, we might take a look underneath the, um, the eyelid itself to make sure it's not something's not stuck under there. And it's easy enough to do. It's sort of like one of those tricks you learn in middle school. Yes, we're back to middle school. And you put a little Q-tip or a little um, um, a, a, a object on the, eyelid, on the eye, grab the eyelashes and pull the eyelid up and it inverts the eyelid. And then you can get a good look. You can even irrigate it. We had one guy one Halloween who got hit in the face with an egg um, washed his eye, but still felt it scratchy. 
we inverted his eye, his eyelid, and there was a piece of eggshell under his eyelid. And we were able to rinse that out, and he felt a lot better, but he still had scratches on his cornea. So we're going to irrigate. When we irrigate someone's eye, there are a couple of rules. First of all, you want to flush from the medial aspect to the lateral aspect. So we don't, why would we want to do that? Well, if we've got schmutz in the eye and we do it the other way, it's going to go from the, this eye into the good eye. So we always want to irrigate it from the medial aspect out so that it runs off, runs out. We prefer to use saline. Um, we carry irrigation um, tubing and, and an irrigation kit in our ambulances. Um, it's saline that is very similar to IV saline, except it's not sterilized to the same specifications. You would not use this for IV use, um, but for irrigation, it's fine. But if you don't have that, tap water works fine as well. If you have something and you can see it on the surface of the eye and you're irrigating it and it won't come off, don't play with it. Don't try to tease it off. Don't go poking at it. Don't try to rub it off because it may appear to be on the surface, but it actually might be embedded in the eye. And if it's embedded in the surface, um, into the eye, that's a different sort of injury. So superficial stuff that we can rinse off, we will, um, but we're not going to try to tease anything that's stuck in there out of the eye, okay? So questions about foreign objects on the surface of the eye. Okay. Having a, an object embedded in your eye is different. You don't know how deep that object is, so you don't know whether or not it's penetrated into the globe. You don't know if it's acting as a plug. So if you start teasing that object out of wherever it's stuck, now you may end up creating a hole that will allow either the aqueous humor or the vitreous humor to leak out. In the top illustration here, you see that there is a, a um, dark object that appears to be on the surface of the eye. That's actually a small piece of metal shaving that's embedded in the eye. So obviously it's going to be an irritating, tearing, my eye hurts, trying to rub it that just won't, I just can't get any relief. Well, okay, we'll try to irrigate that. It's stuck in there. We're not going to do anything else. Let's take them to the hospital. Because if you pull that out, you might end up with the contents of the eye beginning to leak out. Okay. Now, depending upon how much leaks out, this patient may or may not get into some significant trouble. If it's just a little bit like here, you have a little dollop showing here. In the hospital, they can actually suture that up and eventually you will re replenish it. But you could actually have a large enough injury where perhaps that um, eye actually collapses because so much of the contents have been pushed out. So if we do have an embedded object, we're going to leave it in place. 
If there are any lacerations that have resulted, we want to protect the eye. We don't want to put any pressure on the eye, on the globe of the eye, and force more stuff out. We don't want to manipulate the eye. So pretty much what we want to try to do is put a sterile dressing on there. When we're dealing with the eyes, we usually use moist sterile dressing. One of the few times when we actually use moist dressings. And just gently cover it without applying pressure. This is not a pressure dressing. It's simply a covering to protect it. We're also going to use an eye shield. Pretty much it's either a plastic or a metal commercial um, shield that fits over the eye. It actually is seated on the bones of the orbit. And what it does is it prevents any pressure from going onto the eye. So it protects the eye from pressure. And usually, if you have an injury such as this, you want to cover both eyes. Both eyes tend to move together. So if I'm covering this eye, and I don't cover my good eye, my unaffected eye, then my eye is going to move. And every time my unaffected eye moves, my affected eye moves as well. And that's gonna cause a certain amount of manipulation. If you cover both eyes, you don't have to worry about it, okay? And you can see in this bottom um, picture, we hooked a big one. We have a fish hook in this patient's eye. Now, obviously we're not going to be yanking this out. So again, you have this impaled object. So we wanna leave that in place, okay? So we'll just put a moist dressing, eye shield, cover both eyes, and let's go to the hospital. Questions about uh, on that kind of eye injury? Okay. So there are a couple of other more catastrophic eye, injur eye injuries. For instance, you can have an impaled object. Here I am, here I was running with a pencil. Doesn't it look like a young Christian Slater? No? Okay, I'm just saying. So what we're going to do is if you have a, an impaled object, we want to um, keep the impaled object in place with a bulky dressing. And we would probably um, cover the unaffected eye as well, okay? In this other picture is an, um, is an extruded globe. This is where someone has sustained trauma to the orbit and the globe has actually, and the um, globe of the eye has actually pushed out of the socket. Okay. So what you want to do is you want to keep an eye out for this sort of injury. Oh, you didn't like that one either. That's not fair. Um, we don't want to reinsert the eye into the socket. What you want to do is use a um, a some sort of protective cup to keep the eye in place and bandage that in place. So a moist sterile dressing on top of the eye, protective cup, cover both eyes, and something of this nature, like with the pencil, you might wanna put a, um, a, some sort of cup over that so that it doesn't accidentally get hit. So we had one guy in South Boston, it was a windy day, he opened his umbrella, and one of the spokes of his umbrella went into his eye and he couldn't close the umbrella. 
and he had this impaled object. So of course we got him and we had to shorten the object because if you have a really long object, it vibrates. So we shortened it. In addition, you don't want to bring that open umbrella into the back of the ambulance. It's really bad luck. All right. The eyes have it. Questions about impaled objects and extruded globes. So those are some examples of penetrating trauma. There's some blunt trauma that can cause some issues. Some of it is pretty benign. For instance, here you have someone who's got essentially, well, a black eye. Um, so not really a, anything to write home about. The thing about periorbital ecchymosis is you might want to consider whether or not there's an underlying fracture. Certainly, if someone punches you in the eye, you can end up with a, um, a uh, orbital fracture, you can end up with a zygomatic fracture, but also remember um, periorbital ecchymosis could indicate a skull fracture as well. So just want to be mindful that while this does not appear to be a serious injury, we don't know what's going on behind there and an x-ray might be warranted. If you take a look at this middle picture, you'll notice that the entire eye appears to be covered with blood or has blood in it. This is either a scleral or a conjunctival hemorrhage. So your conjunctiva has got red blood, red, red uh, has got blood vessels. So that those can rupture with impact, or the vessels in your sclera can rupture. Most of the time as the injury heals, that blood will be um, reabsorbed. The problem is that if it clots, it can actually obstruct the vision as well. So usually um, take that to you know, these patients, go to the hospital, they'll have it irrigated. They'll see, make sure that there's no continuing bleeding that, requ that requires um, any sort of intervention. But something like this, you might wanna consider what, what other um, damage could have been done to this eye. And then from there, there's this sort of injury. This is your anterior chamber of the eye. And you see this layer of blood filling the anterior chamber. This is called hyphema. Hyphema is when you have bleeding into the anterior chamber of the eye. You do want to try to keep this patient seated upright. We don't want the blood pouring into the um, through the pupil and then pressing against the lens. Um, so this is a an, an ocular emergency, if you will. This is something that needs to be tended to um, by a specialist. Okay. So all of these seemingly not terribly serious, but there are some serious complications that can result. Okay. Questions about hyphemas. Okay. It, there is that one question, Captain. What would cause a hyphema? Just a blunt blow to the face, the finger to the eye, right? Yep, 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 yep. So any of those, any of that could cause in, injury to the anterior chamber. As you look at this lovely young lass. Um, 
hold on, Captain. There was a follow-up question to that on that last picture. So the the large pupils are because these were taken in hospital and they probably dilated the pupil in order to see what was going on if the retina was intact and that sort of thing. So as you look at this lovely young lass and you notice her eyes, you can see that the eyes are looking in different directions. We call that a disconjugate gaze. So this is a disconjugate gaze. So lazy eye would be an example of a cause of a disconjugate gaze. Um, and that's due to um, eye muscles, but this is due to a trauma. So an orbital fracture, someone gets a blow to the orbit and shatters their, the bones that support the globe. The, eye, the muscles that control ocular movement may be impinged, may be pinched by those bone fragments, or the nerves that control those muscles might be pinched or might even be severed. In that case, the eye may not be able to move. So as you're assessing your patient for their facial injury and for their eye injury, take a look at their gaze. Is their gaze conjugate? Are their eyes going in the same direction? And as you ask them to track your finger, are they tracking together as a conjugate gaze? If one is tracking and the other is not, then that is a disconjugate gaze. And that indicates something going on with those muscles. An orbital fracture can also cause vision changes because of the, the impact, because of the change of the size of the globe, of the shape of the globe. And we talked a bit about blowout fractures when we talked about facial injuries. You can also get a detached retina. We mentioned that the retina is really kind of covering the back of your globe, and that's where the impulses, the light shines and generates impulses. The retina, if you need to think in three dimensions, if your cupped hand is the back of the globe of your eye, the retina is like a sheet of, of um, almost like a, uh, a membrane that covers it. So you can have separation of the retina from either the edges of the globe or of the retina or from the center, in which case you might see visual changes. Patients very often experience sudden change in their peripheral vision, or they'll see um, basically gaps in their visual field. And that usually indicates a detached retina. A number of things can cause retinal detachment, obviously blunt force trauma to the head. Also straining when you're lifting something very heavy can cause a retinal detachment. Retinal detachments can be treated. Um, not a whole lot of fun to treat. What they usually do is uh, they will take a syringe and they put a bubble of air into your eye and they have you lay face down for 23 hours out of the day so that the bubble will exert pressure against the retina that's detached and press it against the back of the eye. And you do that for several weeks um, basically, you have to stay face down for several weeks while that bubble is pushing, pre exerting pressure against the retina and putting, allowing it to reattach. 
you want to talk about quarantine. Questions about retinal detachment? Okay. There is just one person who had not ever heard of a lazy eye, Captain. Lazy eye? Yes. Lazy eye is just a, def a deficiency in one of the oculomotor nerves that doesn't allow your eye to track with the other eye. So it makes the eye look like it's not moving. Okay. All right. So burns to the eye. Obviously, the eyes are very vulnerable. They're right out there. A little bit of a splash can cause a lot of damage. So there are a lot of things that can cause um, burns to the eye. Chemicals, heat, so thermal burns, like a flash, or light rays, radiation. When we're talking about chemical burns, that chemical is going to continue bur burning until either the chemical is all used up or you get the chemical off of the eye. We will irrigate with saline for 20 minutes. That's general rule of thumb. So copious amounts of water. Remember, you want to wash from the medial aspect out to the lateral aspect, especially with chemicals. You don't want that chemical runoff to go into the good eye. This very um, ingenious EMT has attached a nasal cannula to a bag of irrigation saline so he can irrigate both eyes at the same time. Now, chemicals being very irritating really cause your patient to kind of clench their eyes closed. So you may need to pry their eye open so that you can irrigate the surface of the eye. And as you do that, you want the patient to look up, down, and all around so you can irrigate as much of the surface of the eye as you possibly can. We talk about using saline for irrigation. In the absence of saline, tap water works fine. And if you have worked in, in um, industry or in some schools, they have special eye fountains that will pour water into someone's eye, and that works great. Don't have to run to your ambulance to irrigate someone's eye if you have a useful tool like that available to you. So here we have an example of a, uh, of a chemical burn to an eye, and you can see how devastating that can be. And it doesn't have to be just an acid or an alkali. Um, it can be something very, uh, very mundane like bleach. Bleach will cause burns to the eye. Thermal burns. Thermal burn, you're, the vitreous humor and the aqueous humor um, have a lot of protein in them. And if you heat protein to a fairly high point, it begins to congeal. Think in terms of a soft boiled egg. Isn't that nice imagery? So now your eye is exposed to this heat and essentially it's poaching. I'm just saying. So remember, the eyes are part of the critical area that is your face. So this sort of um, injury, you need to think in terms of point of entry. Um, a, a burn center would be a good idea. Fortunately, here in our catchment, 
the eye specialty hospital and a burn specialty hospital are part of the same parent agency. The Mass General has a burn unit and the Mass General is the parent agency of Mass Eye and Ear. So when you have these injuries to the eye, your point of entry, Mass Eye and Ear is not a bad choice. Radiation, light can cause injury. For instance, welder's arc, um, laser, uh, eclipse light. That's why you're not supposed to look directly at an eclipse. Infrared light, all of these can damage your eye. It causes your eye to be very itchy, teary. Um, usually with light burns, the onset of symptoms tends to be delayed. So it's not, I just was exposed and now it hurts. Um, usually it, you know, you get exposed and then over a period of a few minutes to a couple of hours, the inflammatory process occurs and now you start feeling that pain. Treatment for the most part, moist sterile dressings and then cover both eyes. Ow. Questions about burns to the eye? Uh, Captain, there is this question that is posed, um, the uh, equipment, like, you know, in the horror movies that keep their eyelids open, um, more about, do you discuss a Morgan lens at all? We don't do Morgan lenses. We're not going to play with Morgan lenses. Um, so as far as prying eyes open, um, anyone who has blunt trauma to the eye, if their eye is swollen shut, or there's a lot of damage there, we're not going to be prying the eye open to look at it. We want to evaluate the pupils if we can, but if there's that much damage that the eye has swollen shut, you don't want to open that up, okay? So no, we're not going to be getting cute little clips that open people's eyes up so that we can keep their eyes open, okay? It's just very, very basic stuff. And okay. Captain, there is a request to go back one slide. I don't know what we missed. All right, do we have everything now? We're good. When we assess an eye, there are certain things that we wanna look for. Obviously, we'll ask the patient, how is your vision? If their vision has been impaired, then that's something to bear in mind. Any changes in their visual field, that sort of thing. We're gonna take a look at their pupils. We're essential, we're um, interested in their equality, certainly, um, but also their shape and their reactivity. Um, if you have pressure on the globe of your eye, it's going to change the shape of your globe, which may change the shape of your pupil. Your pupil should react in a robust, brisk fashion. And when you shine a light in the left eye, the left eye will contract, will constrict, and so will the right. And we remember, if you remember, we call that consensual response. So we want to do a pupillary assessment if we can. Unless that eye is so injured that it's puffed up and it's swollen shut, then we're not going to poke and prod. What do you notice about the patient's gaze? Is their gaze conjugate? Do they have good ocular movement? 
When they track, do their eyes move together? Does their gaze become disconjugate? So these are things that you want to look for as you're assessing someone's um, eye injury. And then, of course, we want to take a look at the structure of the orbit. As you look at the eye, it may look like the eye is being pushed forward compared to the other. That might be due to bleeding or pressure behind the eye. So you might, might, want, might want to make note of that. Are the conjunctiva intact or are they bleeding? Um, is there a global extrusion? And now you have to worry about making sure it doesn't, um, it's being supported. So you want to make sure that the supporting structures are all intact. Talking about contact lenses and prosthetics, there are people who do have prosthetics, so bear that in mind. Contact lenses should remain in place unless there's a chemical burn. If there's a chemical burn, chemical product might be caught underneath the lens. So now you're irrigating the eye, but there's still product under the lens and not able to get at it. So if there is a chemical burn, you want to get that um, contact lens out of the eye. Um, if you have any sort of injury, we don't want to be poking around the eye. We're not going to use Morgan lenses. That's something that um, is not a BLS tool. So we're not going to be directly irrigating the eye other than using an irrigation setup and using uh, flowing water, not, not a particular device. When you we get, get to too much further into this slide, Captain, can you just slide back to the last slide real quick? Good. Did you get what you needed? Great. All right. Thumbs up. We're good to go. So just to ascertain whether or not they do have a contact lens and we can let the hospital know when we get there. Prosthetic eyes. Um, prosthetic eyes don't uh, function. So you're doing an assessment on a patient and there's no pupillary response. The eye is not tracking. All right, ask the patient. So is there anything going on with your left eye? Yes, it's a prosthetic. Okay, we don't have to worry about it now. Okay, um, so just be aware of it. Just because you have this patient and you're noticing that their gaze is weird doesn't necessarily mean that it's all catastrophe, but prosthetic eyes are out there. Keeping an eye out for you. Questions? Outstanding. Now would be a really good time for our first poll question. I can't. Can you just leave that last slide back up for a second? I know it was a very content heavy slide. Contact lens, don't touch. Contact lens, unless it's a burn. Contact lens, let the hospital know. We good? Excellent. 
poll question. Excellent. All right, Captain, uh, I'm ready when you are. Unmute. What are the results? So here we go, Cap. You got um, about a 52% that said priapism and then about 35% that thought all of the above was correct. So for those of you that thought that priapism was the answer, you're right, congratulations. Spinal cord injury frequently presents with priapism. However, spinal cord injury usually presents with hypotension because of the vasodilation that occurs. And because you're vasodilated, you drop your blood pressure. Tachycardia, now usually when you're talking serious spine injury, you end up with a bradycardia or at best on the low side of normal for a heart rate. So for those of you that chose priapism, 
good job. I'm a little concerned that that's the only thing you really remembered from that lecture, but that's okay. I don't judge. And then Captain, we have a couple housekeeping questions that have been asked. Um, the first one is, will you go over the extra credit questions at the end of this? I said I would. Okay, and then um, people are wondering about the next posting of grades. So we'll have uh, quiz seven finished, hopefully by the end of, uh, well, the end of tonight. Um, and we'll worry about the posting of anything else. What else is there? How about test two makeup? Oh, wait, that's Saturday. Oh, quiz seven, quiz eight, we just took it. So, um, so Saturday afternoon, they can, uh, they can assume that there will be some um, posting. Most definitely. Thank you. All right. Any other questions? Mr. Liu, very nice comeback. Thank you. These eye jokes are so cornea. Very funny. All right, so now we're gonna talk about um, another type of injury that is life-threatening. We talked about head injury being life-threatening. Now we're gonna talk about chest and belly trauma. So let's talk about thoracoabdominal injury and we're gonna start with the anatomy of the chest, a quick review. As we look at the anterior chest, let's identify some of the more salient parts. We know that the bony structures of the chest, for instance, up here, the clavicles, the collarbones. And then from there, we notice that um, if you were to flip this patient around, posteriorly, you would see the irregularly shaped bones that make up their shoulder blade called the scapulae, scapula. We have the anterior portion here of their chest called the sternum. Remember the sternum has got three parts to it. The superior most part is called the manubrium. And then we've got the body of the sternum. And then we have the xiphoid process, the cartilaginous tail of the, of the sternum, the inferior most portion. But we also know that where the manubrium meets the sternum also happens to be where the second rib meets the sternum and it creates what is known as the angle of Louis. And there's an anatomic event that occurs in the chest at that level. And if you remember what is happening here to your trachea at this point, it's exactly, Ms. Stone, it's, it's branching off into the right and left main stem bronchi. And we, of course, call that fork in the road, the carina. We have ribs. How many pairs of ribs do we have? 12. You had me worried there, Mr. Lou. I thought you were giving me the finger. So yes, we have 12 pairs of ribs. They start at your 12 thoracic vertebra, head anteriorly, um, the ribs one through seven, pretty much attached directly to the sternum, true ribs. Then you have a bunch, several ribs that attach 
here to this costal arch, right? Eight, nine, and 10. And then 11 and 12 are floating ribs, okay? So that's a quick review of the anterior or the, uh, the anatomy there. Any questions about that? Shouldn't be anything new or earth shattering there. As we peel away this guy's thoracic wall and we take a look inside, we'll notice that the lungs are on either side and they are housed in what we call the hemithorax. The right hemithorax has got the right lung with three lobes. The left hemithorax has the left lung with two lobes, five lobes all told, right? And between the two hemithoraces, right, we have a space and that space between the hemithoraces is called the mediastinum. And the mediastinum has got all sorts of really good stuff in there. The heart is in the mediastinum, roughly in the middle. About two thirds of the mass of the heart is to the left of midline. You have your great vessels, the aorta coming off of the left ventricle, the pulmonary artery coming off of the right ventricle, the two vena cavi coming into the right atrium, and the four pulmonary veins coming into the left atrium. So you got all that. It looks like the central artery tunnel project. And then in addition to that, you've got the trachea bifurcating right about here. And you've got the esophagus coming down your mediastinum and exiting through your diaphragm. So we got all that stuff in our mediastinum. We also remember, I hope, that there is a membrane that covers the chest wall and also covers the lung. And that double-layered, self-reflecting serous membrane is called the pleura. And the membrane that covers the lung itself is called the visceral pleura. And the membrane that covers the chest wall, the part that covers the chest wall, is the parietal pleura. And these two membranes press against each other. There's a thin layer of fluid between them creating surface tension. So now when your chest expands, using your chest muscles, the lungs stick to the inside of your chest and go along for the ride. So it is this potential space, the space between the two layers of the pleura, okay, filled with this pleural fluid that is crucial in keeping your lung fully inflated. It prevents your lung from collapsing. The inferior border of your thorax is your diaphragm. And the diaphragm is an interesting border because it is a moving border. When you breathe in, that diaphragm, dome-shaped as it is, flattens out and lowers. So that border drops. When you exhale, that muscle those muscles relax, and now it goes back to its original dome shape, and so now it moves back up. 
And that'll become an interesting um, fact when we start talking about um, stab wounds to the abdomen. Okay. Questions about that? Okay. When we talk about the muscles of breathing, the diaphragm, remember, accounts for how much, what percent of the respiratory effort? About 60%, good. And the intercostal muscles account for the remaining 40% in the normal resting breath. So those intercostal muscles are the muscles between the ribs. Bear in mind that those muscles have a blood supply, they have nerves. Bear in mind that the ribs have got arteries and um, veins that run on the inferior border of each rib. So even though these are muscular and bony structures, there's a blood supply there. So questions about the anatomy of the chest as we see here. All right, cool. So let's talk about different types of chest injury. Much as we have seen in our discussions of other parts of the body, we have open and we have closed chest injuries. Open chest injuries involve a penetrating mechanism. We talked about things like um, slow or low velocity penetrations like knives, javelins, things like that. We also talked about moderate to high velocity projectiles, ballistics, penetrating. The nice thing about open chest injury is pretty much it's a gift from the trauma god to you. It tends to be fairly apparent Injury, when you take a look at that injury, you're concerned about the path of travel of the object and how much energy that object had. Remember, when we talked about low energy object, low velocity objects like knives, pretty much it was just the path we were worried about. But when we talk about things like um, ballistics, you have to worry about the phenomenon of cavitation. The energy wave that is part of that high velocity causes an outward pressure wave that's going to damage more tissue. So cavitation is something that we worry about with high energy or high velocity projectiles. So we have open chest injuries. We can also have closed chest injuries. This is usually due to blunt force trauma as far as mechanism goes. And as you look at this gentleman, you can see that he's got a mark where the seat belt is from his slamming on the brakes. Okay, so there's some bruising right there. The thing about blunt force trauma as it pertains to chest injury is that it can be less obvious and it can take time to evolve. So this injury here, this bruise, may not be present when you get there, but may evolve over the next hour or so. And again, when we're talking about closed or um, injury or blunt force trauma, we're not exactly sure what the path of energy is because it's hitting the body. So we have to worry about underlying structures. How are those underlying structures disrupted? Okay. Questions about open and closed chest injury. 
Cool. So in talking about chest injury, there are some signs and symptoms we expect to see. Um, there is not a whole lot of subtlety here. Um, chest injury is pretty consistent regardless of what the cause is. There are some nuances that we look for for specific injuries, but pretty much just about all chest injuries have similar core signs and symptoms. Not surprisingly, regardless of what your mechanism, we're going to look for decap BLS tick, okay? And certainly asking you what that all means is a lot more entertaining when we're all together. But certainly deformities, contusions, abrasions, punctures and penetrations, burns, lacerations, swelling, tenderness, instability, and crepitus are all what we're looking for, no matter what the injury is. Obviously, injury um, to the chest is going to result in tenderness. Usually, chest injury results in what's called point tenderness, which is tenderness or pain that is well localized at the point of impact. In addition, this pain might increase upon deep respiration. And we, of course, call that pleuritic chest pain. So, pleuritic chest pain point tenderness, it's gonna hurt upon palpation. So these are, this is a reproducible chest pain, um, pleuritic chest pain. Because the chest is involved, this patient's likely to be short of breath. So when it's, as you look at them, they might appear to be dyspneic, having a difficult time breathing. They'll be tachypneic, they're trying to compensate for this chest injury by increasing their respiratory rate, hopefully to maintain their minute volume. Because of this chest injury, they may or may not be perfusing very well. Gas exchange may be um, hindered, may be affected. So they're going to get this adrenaline dump that causes the skin to become pale and cool. So when you talk about serious chest injury, we're talking about a compensatory mechanism kicking in so the patient can compensate for decreased gas exchange. As you're assessing this patient's pulse, they'll be tachycardic, we expect that, compensatory mechanism. But also you might notice their pulses weaken when they take a breath in. If that's the case, we call that a pulsus paradoxus, and that indicates serious chest injury um, the specifics of which we're gonna talk about in a few minutes. But certainly, if that pulse weakens when they breathe in, that's indicating a very, very serious, life-threatening chest injury. In addition, because this is going to affect the lung tissue, this patient might have hemoptysis. You might recall that hemoptysis means coughing up blood. People rarely cough up large, copious amounts of blood. It's one of those things that you see in horror movies that you really don't see very much in real life. Most people, if they're coughing up blood, they're coughing up blood-tinged sputum or maybe 10 cc's of blood at a time, but rarely do they cough up large amounts of blood. We wanna to listen to breath sounds 
that will help help us differentiate amongst several different types of chest injury. Usually with breath sounds, we're looking for very specifically presence and equality. We're not looking for wheezing, rawls, or adventitious breath sounds. We're looking for the presence and equality of breath sounds. That's what we're looking for. If there's been a break in the tracheobronchial tree, air might be leaking out of the respiratory tract and getting forced into the soft tissue. And that's something we call subcutaneous air. As you run your hands over the patient's chest, you might notice it feels like Rice Krispies. Um, you might notice it feels like bubbles underneath the skin. That indicates that they have a break in the respiratory tree and air is leaking out and getting forced into the soft tissue. In certain significant chest injuries, you might look for tracheal shift or JVD. JVD is usually easier to see than tracheal shift. Tracheal shift can be difficult to see. Um, it also tends to show up later than JVD. If you are looking for tracheal shift, what you want to do is find the thyroid cartilage, the voice box, the most prominent part of the larynx, and just follow that down as it heads toward the chest. And if it's midline, it'll stay midline. If it's deviated, if it's shifted, as you get closer to the chest, it will move to one side. It tends to shift to the uninjured side. So if my trachea is shifting to the left, it is the right side of my chest that is injured. Okay. Questions about that? Okay. And when you take someone's blood pressure with a chest injury, this is pretty much um, shock, you know, hypotension. So we're looking to make sure that this patient is hemodynamically stable. As we're taking their blood pressure, though, you want to notice whether or not their pulse pressure is narrowing. A narrowing pulse pressure indicates two specific types of chest injury, on tension pneumothorax and pericardial tamponade. And it becomes important because those are life-threatening injuries. So you need to be able to pick up on that. Questions about signs and symptoms we expect to see. First, generally in just about any chest injury, and then as we get to more specific chest injuries, what we're likely to see. All right, cool. So let's talk about some specific chest injuries. Probably the simplest and most benign of the chest injuries is a rib fracture. You and your friend were practicing your mixed martial arts moves in the basement. Um, your mother told you to knock it off, and for whatever reason, you didn't. And now you end up with a, a fractured rib. Obviously, um, the elderly are more susceptible to this. As you get older, your ribs become more brittle. And a mechanism that might just cause a bruised rib in you or me could cause a rib fracture in Mrs. Old. 
So you want to bear that in mind. So when they take a deep breath, it's going to hurt. They're also going to um, splint that rib by breathing in a shallow way. If they take a deep breath and they get lots of chest expansion, it hurts. So they will have shallow, rapid breathing. They're breathing rapidly to make up for the decreased tidal volume because it hurts so much. When you listen to their breath sounds, their breath sounds should sound equal. There shouldn't be any real issue with their breath sounds unless they have a complication that we'll talk about in a brief moment. As you palpate their chest, obviously it'll be painful upon palpation. It'll, you might notice some crepitus. If you recall, crepitus is bone ends grating against each other. Usually these patients present by splinting the injured side. They use their arm to kind of splint it. Um, they, they, will, they, they will guard against moving it. When you go to touch it, they'll kind of protect it. And that's common when you talk about um, this sort of injury. Treatment for rib injuries in general are pretty, well, limited. The patient themselves might self-splint, which is fine. They may say, I'm, more, I'm comfortable with my arm tucked in like this. Great, no problem. Um, if that's the way that makes them comfortable, then maybe an ACE wrap going around their arm like you would a swath, for instance, to keep it in place may make them feel comfortable. But the days of binding someone's chest are over just because it reduces their ability to breathe. When they get to the hospital, in all likelihood, assuming they have no complications, they will just discharge this patient um, with pain medication. Now notice, I didn't put any other treatment up there. We can just acknowledge that oxygen is in play for all of these patients, but if someone's got a sore rib, I'm way more interested in what's their O2 sat before I start giving them O2. So if their O2 saturation is down, I'll give them O2. If they're uncomfortable, nasal cannula will work, but really I'm going to um, titrate the O2 to their O2 saturation. The big issue are the complications. If you've suffered a fractured rib, there's the possibility that that rib end, that now fractured bone end, could penetrate your lung and puncture your lung. That's a serious complication, okay? So a punctured lung means that now we're heading toward, well, a pneumothorax. So it's not the rib injury that's the problem, it's the complication. I also mentioned that your ribs have blood vessels. They have a neurovascular bundle on the underside of each rib. If that neurovascular bundle is torn with the breaking of the rib, then you can end up with some bleeding into your chest as well. Okay, so these are some complications. Obviously, not everyone who has a rib fracture gets these. The most common place for rib fractures tends to be along the lateral ribs because that's where they're bending and that's where the, the less force is necessary to cause the injury. Questions about rib, rib fractures? Cool. 
Well, there you were, practicing your mixed martial arts moves in your mother's basement, when your friend punched you several times in the chest, or maybe kicked you in the chest. And now you've got a flail segment. A flail chest occurs when two or more adjacent ribs are broken in two or more places. And what happens is you end up with a free-floating segment. Now, in the illustration on your slide, they have fractured three ribs. Well, that's one more than is necessary. All you need is two contiguous ribs, two adjacent ribs to be fractured in two places. So now you have this free floating segment. The thing is when you take a breath in, if you remember from our discussions of the mechanics of breathing, your chest expands increasing the intrathoracic volume, and that in turn decreases the intrathoracic pressure. And if your chest were intact, you would suck air in through your airway. The thing is, when you drop that pressure, not only do you suck air into your airway, but you're going to suck this free-floating segment into your chest. So now most of your chest is lifting and this segment is collapsing. And that of course is what we call paradoxical motion. Okay. So paradoxical motion, the movement of a part of the chest opposite to what is expected indicates a flail segment. Now here in the illustration, they show you a flail segment that's on the lateral side, lateral chest. You can actually have a flail sternum. We used to see a lot of these in the days before airbags. And what would happen is your chest would hit the steering wheel and you would fracture several of these cartilaginous connections on either side of your sternum, and you would fracture the sternal joint here. And now your front of your sternum would be free floating. And that means that the rest of your chest has no anchor point. So you're not gonna get very good chest rise, okay? So you can have a flail sternum. Questions about flail chest so far? So what do we do for this? Well, first of all, you have to understand what's happening here, right? The amount of air I move with each breath is dictated by the pressure change. And the pressure change is proportional to the volume change. And if I'm changing my volume less than normal, I'm going to change the pressure less than normal which means I'm going to move less air in. So now what we really need to do is try to stabilize this section. The easiest way really to do that is if you have the patient exhale and then tape the flail segment to the surrounding chest. Now when the patient takes a breath in, 
that segment will go along for the ride. So using three inch tape and have the patient exhale as deeply as they can and taping it to the flail segment and the surrounding structures will stabilize the chest. The other thing you can do is you can assist the patient with their ventilations. So as they take a breath in, you can slowly ventilate them. And that will help essentially splint the section from the inside of the chest out, okay? The ventilating of the patient tends to be um, difficult because the patient may fight you. So usually we'll let the mental status of the patient dictate whether or not we do it. Also, we will let the patient's O2 saturation dictate whether or not we do this, okay? So questions about a flail segment. Uh, there is that one, Captain, about the um, CPR. We could perform CPR, but you wanna just lightly refresh about trauma and uh, being dead. Yeah, so if we're doing CPR, I'm thinking things are about as bad as they're going to be, right? They're dead. So if you're doing CPR, you may fracture ribs in the process of doing that. Okay, that's better than being dead. Um, would you create a flail segment? It's unusual. Could you flail someone's sternum? Yes, especially the elderly, okay? But they're dead and nothing's worse than dead. Well, spending a weekend in Philadelphia maybe, but other than that, nothing's worse than dead. I'm channeling my inner WC field. Okay. And then uh, Captain, just we recover how we do assess that kind of stuff. We just um, do it delicately. Yeah, so you know, you palpate the chest. I mean, if you're, remember the paradoxical motion is something you should be looking at during the breathing step, right? A, B, C. Oh look, paradoxical motion. So you're aware of it, so gently palpate. You should inspect before you palpate. So during your rapid assessment, you expose the chest, inspect the chest. Oh, look, there's a flail segment, palpate it. If it's not flail, if you don't notice the paradoxical motion, then palpate it. Maybe you'll find it then, okay? But you gotta find it in order to treat it and looking at it, it's one way. And if you're missing it, then feeling it is another. Okay. There are some complications that can arise from this. So yeah, you got these bone ends instead of having just two bone ends here, we are now, excuse me. Now we have six bone ends. So now you could have a pneumothorax or remember there's lung tissue under here. If this has absorbed so much energy that it has fractured, then that lung tissue might be damaged. And if you have that damaged lung tissue, it might not be participating in gas exchange as well as we would like. And that's when we would get into what's their O2 saturation and should we ventilate them, okay? So I see here, does the flail segment stay suspended or drop down to the, no, it doesn't drop to you 
it's it's supported by the musculature right so you have all these muscles in between the ribs keeping it in place the thing is that you don't have the structural integrity to maintain the against against the pressure does that make sense okay So ribs, rib fractures, flail chests. And we mentioned that one of the potential issues that's going to arise are pneumothoraces. A pneumothorax is a collection of air in the pleural space. We want air in our lung. That's where we want the lung, the air not in the pleural space. Air in the pleural space doesn't help us at all. And now it's going to break that seal between the pleura. So when we talk about pneumothoraces, air in the pleural space, and it can be a closed injury. For instance, with our rib fracture friend, he got punched in the ribs the thoracic wall is intact. There's no penetrating injury to the chest wall, but there is a puncture in wound in the lung. So every time the patient takes a breath in, air leaks out of that wound site in the lung, and now it starts filling this pleural space. As it fills the pleural space, the lung detaches and drops and collapses. When you listen to breath sounds, you will hear unequal breath sounds. So the breath sounds on the injured side will sound diminished or distant compared to the uninjured side. And that's why we want to compare one side to the other, one side to the other. So now we can understand that this lung is collapsing. The treatment for a simple pneumothorax like this really is position of comfort. This, this patient's likely to wanna be sitting upright unless there's some other trauma that indicates they need to be immobilized or have spinal motion restriction done, then whatever position they're comfortable in is perfectly fine. Again, O2, sure, yeah. If he's got diminished breath sounds, O2, definitely. So this is an example of a closed pneumothorax. Well, if you can have a closed pneumothorax, it stands to reason you could have an open pneumothorax. With an open pneumothorax, something has penetrated the chest wall and entered that pleural space. And again, every time you take a breath in and the pressure in the chest drops, you suck air into your airway, but now you're gonna be sucking air in through that hole. This is what we call a sucking chest wound. And as every EMT will tell you, all chest wounds suck. This is the type of chest wound that we spend a lot of time worrying about, but quite honestly, the hole in the chest needs to be about the size of a nickel to really get enough air movement to get this patient into trouble. You might notice as they breathe in, 
that there's bubbling at the wound site, and that would indicate that air is moving in and out, okay? If this guy was stabbed in the chest and he's got this hole in his chest, that would cause a pneumothorax and this lung to collapse. And if the lung were punctured, air would also be coming into the chest from the lung. So now you're getting air into this pleural space from both the hole in the chest and the hole in the lung. So again, when we listen to this patient, we'll hear unequal breath sounds. We might notice bubbling at the wound site, indicating a sucking chest wound. But in any event, we want to limit the amount of air getting into this chest. And we talked about how we would add a or seal this with an occlusive dressing. You can use a glove. You can use the wrapper from your O2 mask, your oxygen mask. You can use a uh, piece of saran wrap. You can use a commercially available occlusive dressing, but you want to seal this wound. And usually when we seal these wounds, we tape it on three sides. Because that means when the patient takes a breath in, air can't get in. And when they exhale, in theory, the air um, will exit through the unsealed side. You would put a dressing over the hole in the chest. Okay. So questions about the open pneumothorax. Nope. Okay. You, there is that one, Captain. Where do you put the dressing again? And what if the puncture is in, inside of the chest? So you put the occlusive dressing on the chest wall to cover the hole in the chest. If the hole is in the lung, there's nothing we can do about that. Okay. Just like if it's a spontaneous pneumothorax and a closed injury with a hole in the lung, there's no way for us to seal that, okay? We're good? Okay. The type of injury that we are most concerned about associated with the pneumothorax is something called a tension pneumothorax. Think of this as being the extreme pneumothorax. So this could be because this could be due to a closed chest injury, the simple pneumothorax we talked about. It could be due to a sucking chest wound. Okay. What's happened at this point is that the ongoing leakage of air, either from the hole in the chest or the hole in the lung, has completely collapsed the lung and filled the hemithorax. So this can be either a closed um, injury or an open injury. And in fact, a lot of times the open injury is less problematic because at least you have a hole where the air can vent. But in any event, now you've got this 
chest, this hemithorax filled with air instead of with lung. So with this complete collapse of the lung, you generally hear, um, you generally get an increased pressure inside this side of the chest. So this side of the chest has all this air that's being forced into it, that's leaking into it, and it's pushing everything to the opposite side. So now we're compressing the good lung and we're pushing the mediastinum off to the side. So now we've got increased pressure into the hemithorax and we're causing all sorts of issues with the heart and the good lung. Questions about the mechanism here. So the presentation of a tension pneumothorax is pretty stark where we were listening to breath sounds and found breath sounds to be unequal, to be diminished on one side. Now they're going to be absent on one side. So the lung is completely collapsed. So we're only going to hear breath sounds on one side. Because of that increased pressure in the hemithorax, the entire mediastinum shifts and it shifts away from the injured side. When that shift happens, the pressure on the heart reduces the amount of blood that can get into the heart. And when that happens, you get JVD because blood is having a tougher time getting into the heart. In addition to seeing JVD, you might see something called Kuzmal sign. And that's when the patient takes a breath in those neck veins really get fat. They really engorge with blood. And that's because when they take that breath in, it increases the pressure to the point where the blood backs up even more. When they exhale, some of that blood can get into their chest. And so now their neck veins reduce in size a little bit. And we already talked about that tracheal shift away from the injury site. There are some things we might expect to see as far as vital signs go. The patient, when you palpate their pulse, you might notice that their pulse weakens when they breathe in. That's called a pulsus paradoxus, as we've talked about, and that's indicative of a tension pneumothorax. When you take their blood pressure, their systolic and their diastolic are going to get closer together. So you'll see a drop in their systolic blood pressure because blood can't get into the heart. And as a result, you can't push as much blood out. And the pressure on the heart when it's at rest is going up. So now you've got that increasing diastolic pressure. So this is the patient who's 130 over 80 when you get them. Five minutes later, they're 120 over 90. A few minutes later, they're 110 over 94 and you're seeing this converging of the blood pressures. Because this is caused by a tear in the respiratory tree, you'll notice some subcutaneous air along the ribs on the affected side. That's air getting pushed into the soft tissue under pressure. You also might notice 
bulging intercostal muscles um, on the side of the injury. And there's a phenomenon called hyperresonance. This is not something we would do in the field necessarily, but you'll see it done in the hospital. If you've gone to the, um, the doctor and you've had your annual poke and prod, they'll do their chest exam, they'll listen to your chest, and then they will percuss your chest. And what they're doing is they're listening for resonance. When you tap something, it creates a sound. Think in terms of a half a glass of water. If you're an optimist, a glass half full. When you tap it, it makes a certain sound. If you were to take that glass and empty it and tap it, it's going to make a higher sound. It's going to be hyper-resonant. That's your pneumothorax. Your chest, normally filled with lung tissue, is half a glass full. And now with the pneumothorax, it's empty. So when it's tapped, it's going to have higher resonance. It's kind of a poor man's x-ray. Treatment for attention pneumothorax, positioning. Whatever position they're comfortable in, although if their blood pressure is dropping, you may need to lay them down. If you're going to lay them down, we prefer to lay them on the affected side prefer to lay them on the side where the hole is. Because remember, there's already pressure on that side. And if you lay them on the affected side, then the unaffected lung is more likely to be able to fill a little bit. But if you roll them on their good side, now the pressure and their body weight is on the good lung. It's not going to expand as well. So positioning is usually on the affected side if they need to be flat. Obviously, high flow O2, possibly um, ventilating this patient. If it's because of an open injury, they have a sucking chest wound, one of the things that you can do is burp the occlusive dressing. In other words, remove the occlusive dressing briefly and then cover it. Because if the pressure is so high on that in that chest, when you remove that, that occlusive dressing, some air may be able to leak out, and then you want to seal it to prevent air from getting back in. This is a call you definitely would like ALS on. Paramedics can do something called a needle decompression. And what happens is they'll stick a needle into the patient's chest, in the third or the second intercostal space, and they will you will hear a gush of air. And that's that that pressure being released, and all of a sudden, this patient's going to be able to breathe, okay? The thing to bear in mind is a tension pneumothorax is one of those things where the pressure on the chest, on one side of the chest, can be so great that the heart no longer can push blood out. So now you arrive on scene, and they have no pulse. We already know that traumatic cardiac arrest with no signs of life on scene usually stays dead. We don't transport. The exception is the hole in the chest. Because if ALS can arrive or we get this patient to the hospital and they can decompress this patient's chest, 
immediately that heart may start beating effectively. Okay. So we don't know if it's a tension pneumothorax or if they've bled out into their chest, but if it's a tension pneumo, it can be fixed. Okay. Questions about tension pneumo? Cool. If you can have air inside your hemithorax, you can have blood inside your hemithorax as well. So blood in the plural space. We cleverly call this a hemothorax. And if you remember, we said that you can lose quite a bit of blood in a hemithorax. You can lose about a liter and a half to two liters in a hemithorax. You, might, you will hear unequal breath sounds. It depends on how badly that lung is deflated. So you might, have, you might hear some air, um, air movement, you might not. The problem is that this patient is likely to go into hypovolemic shock. You won't see JVD here because there's not enough volume in the system to make these veins really big. We're leaking blood into the chest cavity. So you're gonna have flat neck veins. You might see tracheal shift, but again, that's tough to see in the best of circumstances. So we're going to anticipate hypovolemic shock in this patient, okay? If you remember, I talked about hyperresonance with the pneumothorax. So here, instead of having a glass half full, you have a glass that's completely full. So when you tap it, it will have a deeper or a lower sound. And that's called hyporesonance. Now granted, we don't percuss the chest in the field, but in the hospital, they might do this rather quickly just to kind of get a sense as to what's going on. In real life, nothing exists in a vacuum, so to speak. And if you have a pneumothorax, you probably have a little bit of blood going into your chest. If you have a hemothorax, you probably have a little bit of air going into your chest. So usually you end up with some sort of hemopneumothorax a combination of blood and air in the chest, okay? Once we get the patient into the hospital, whether you're talking pneumothorax, tension pneumothorax, hemothorax, hemopneumothorax, anything involving the collapsing of a lung, in the hospital, they're going to put in a chest tube. They're going to make a surgical incision in the side of the chest, the lateral thorax, they're going to take a rubber tube. They're going to shove it into the chest cavity. They're going to connect it to a vacuum. And they're going to pull out whatever is in there. They may pull out only air, pneumothorax. They may pull out only blood, hemothorax. They may pull out 100 cc's of blood and 400 cc's of air. They may pull out 400 cc's of blood and 100 cc's of air, whatever's going on in there, they're gonna be pulling that out. And now when the patient breathes, hopefully over a period of time, usually several days, the lung will begin to inflate more and more. And eventually the lung will make contact with the chest wall. 
seal up, and now you'll have a repaired lung. Okay. Questions about collapsed lungs, pneumo, hemo, hemo, pneumo, tension, pneumo, finding pneumo. No, okay. Another serious life-threatening chest injury is something called pericardial tamponade. Pericardial tamponade involves fluid or blood in the pericardial sac. This results in compressing the heart. This can be due to blunt force trauma or penetrating trauma, but as the fluid fills the sac of the heart, it makes it more difficult for blood to get into the heart. So now the heart doesn't fill as well, which is gonna make it more difficult to push blood out. So in many ways, this is similar to a tension pneumothorax, pressure on the heart. The difference is the pressure is not coming from air filling the chest wall, the chest cavity, but rather blood filling the pericardial sac. The signs and symptoms of pericardial tamponade are what we call Beck's triad. You get JVD, okay, that makes sense. If my sac is filling and I can't get blood in, it's gonna build up in the jugular veins. Narrowing pulse pressure, again, if I can't get blood into my heart, I can't push it out. Systolic pressure drops. Increasing pressure on my heart at rest, diastolic goes up. Okay, makes sense. But instead of breath sounds being affected, heart sounds will be affected. We don't usually listen to heart sounds, but if you happen to listen to this person's chest for breath sounds, and you notice their heart sounds, that lub-dub, lub-dub of their valves closing, with pericardial tamponade, it sounds like you're listening to it through fluid. And that's because you're listening to it through fluid. So they sound muffled. And that's Beck's triad. In addition, much like with a tension pneumothorax, because this does resemble a tension pneumothorax in several respects, you may palpate a pelsus paradoxus. The pulse will be weaker when they breathe in. And you might notice Kuzmal's sign as well. When they breathe in, these neck veins will get really big. And when they breathe out, they get smaller. Okay. The treatment for this is supportive. There's nothing we can do for this patient, except give them a quick ride to the hospital. This is also one of those things that can cause cardiac arrest, that can be resolved. Okay. The way it gets resolved is in the hospital, they will insert a needle into the chest, into the pericardial sac, and pull the fluid or the blood out. And now the heart can beat unrestrictedly and the pulse will come back, okay? If you recall our discussion of um, cardiac dysrhythmias, I mentioned pulseless electrical activity Pericardial tamponade and tension pneumothoraces are two of the causes of pulseless electrical activity. 
And that's why if they have no pulse when we get there, we're going to transport these patients because the penetrating trauma to the chest may have caused this and it might be resolved. Okay. Questions about pericardial tamponade? So the question is, can you give O2? We would give O2 to all these patients. Okay, O2 to everybody. It's free, it grows on trees. Okay. Another type of chest injury is called traumatic asphyxia. Traumatic asphyxia is due to circumferential chest injury or sudden severe compression of the chest. So think in terms of a building collapse. Think in terms of someone trying to climb out of an elevator that's stuck between floors and the elevator shifts, okay? So all of these mechanisms involve a sudden increase in the pressure inside the chest. It comes with a pretty characteristic presentation. Again, JVD, because I can't get blood into my chest. Cyanosis above the level of the injury. So cyanotic pretty much from the top of the chest to the neck to the head. Eyes bulging because of the increased pressure. And a lot of times scleral hemorrhage that you'd expect to see with suffocation. The problem is that this has a very high rate mortality rate. And very often the act of rescuing this person taking this pressure off of their chest causes them to bleed to death. So this has a very high mortality rate and there's really not much that we can do other than supportive treatment. High flow to ventilate CPR if necessary. Or as Mr. Galwan notes, hugs. Hugs are very important. Okay. Questions about traumatic chest injury but asphyxia rather. Okay. There are some other miscellaneous chest injuries with which we should be familiar. For instance, a pulmonary contusion, a bruise to the lung tissue. That lung tissue, once it's bruised, cannot participate in gas exchange effectively until it heals. So now you've got decreased gas exchange and this patient is going to end up with um, lower O2 saturations. Pulmonary contusion can be caused by blunt force trauma, flail segment. So the pulmonary contusion can be a complication of an injury or an injury in and of itself. The treatment for this is high flow O2. Let's titrate the O2 to the O2 saturation. Um, and then in the hospital, they will monitor this patient, maybe um, assist their ventilations if necessary. Um, eventually, hopefully, the lung tissue will heal itself. If not, they may need to go in and do some surgical intervention. If you bruise, if you can bruise your lung, well, then you can have a myocardial contusion. And who hasn't had a bruised heart? When you bruise your heart, that contused tissue does not conduct electricity as well as the healthy tissue. So these patients tend to have an irregular pulse. They may have chest pain. The presentation is very similar to an MI. 
These patients will remain on a heart monitor for a while, be monitored. A lot of their labs will come back similar to heart attacks. Hopefully their heart muscle will, um, will heal effectively and they'll be discharged. If you are punched in the chest, there's something called commotio cordis. Commotio cordis is when you sustain a blow to the chest at just the perfect time in your cardiac cycle. Usually it's right at the T wave. And what it does is it causes ventricular fibrillation. So this is a cardiac arrest due to blunt force trauma to the chest that as you look at that mechanism, you know that that did not cause serious damage. So we're not talking about a Mack truck. We're not talking about you know um, a lot of force. We're talking about a punch to the chest. Think Kill Bill Volume Two, okay? Or um, some high school kid or some uh, middle school kid takes a baseball off the chest. It hits him at just the. He's healthy. Hits him at just the perfect time in the cardiac cycle to put him in V-fib. You get there. There's no blood. There's no flail segment. There's no. It's 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 a it's a cardiac arrest due to blunt force trauma that's minimal, and the arrest is disproportionate to the to the injury. The thing is that this cardiac arrest, yes, it's traumatic. But this is more of an electrical issue than a trauma issue. This is not destruction of the heart. This is an electrical event. So it responds very well to AED and to defibrillation. So when we're talking about commotio cordis, we treat this as a medical arrest. Okay. Questions about pulmonary, myocardial contusions, and commotio cordis. Okay. So don't go punching people in the chest. Couple of other types of injuries. You can lacerate the great vessels of the heart. Um, this is, can be due to penetrating injury, it's gunshot wounds, stab wounds, Motor vehicle collisions, deceleration injuries, especially T-bone or broadside accidents. And what happens is you lacerate your aorta and now you exsanguinate into your chest. So if there are no signs of life when we get there, you know, there's, it's unlikely that this patient is going to survive. The thing is, if they do have pulses on scene, you have to have a high index of suspicion based on the mechanism, the location of the wound, and their presentation. Are they going to crash? So treatment is supportive. Let's get them to a trauma center. You can have diaphragmatic rupture. We know how sad that can be. And what happens is the force, whatever mechanism is, pushes the abdominal contents through the diaphragm into the chest. Very often this patient is going to be having obviously some difficult difficulty breathing, but also when you listen to their chest, you may hear bowel sounds, which definitely is unusual. But um, we just wanna be cognizant of the fact that 
um, based on the mechanism, you could have displacement of the abdominal organs into the chest cavity. Tracheal rupture. You can rupture your trachea due to blunt force trauma or penetrating injury. Um, we put this in chest injury because remember, your trachea does not end at the neck. There's about two and a half to three inches of it in your chest, and that can rupture as well. And that will end up with subcutaneous air around the clavicles usually. So as we finish up chest injury, considerations, mechanism, remember that you can have closed or open injury and they can very often result in pulmonary injury. So listen to those breath sounds and get pulse oximetry for chest injuries. Not because blood, blood loss is going to matter as far as O2 saturation goes, but because if it is a lung injury, it'll show up in the pulse oximetry. Listen to those breath sounds. What do they tell you? Are they, are they present and equal or are they diminished or are they absent? Bear in mind that there are certain types of injury that are going to result in mechanical shock, obstructive shock. Tension pneumothorax, pericardial tamponade. Those are the two forms of obstructive shock, obstructive mechanical shock that we worry about. And both of those can also result in hypovolemic shock. So remember, when you're talking chest injury, it can be lung, it can be pump, it can be volume. Vital signs may help you figure this out. If there's a narrowing pulse pressure or a paradox, we're thinking mechanical shock. If all we're seeing is a drop in blood pressure, now we're thinking hypovolemic shock. So the vital signs may help you sort out what's going on as well. Point of entry. Point of entry, we want to think in terms of trauma centers for major injuries. Rib fractures can go to the neighborhood hospital. Flail segments probably should go to a trauma center. And once you start talking about pneumo, tension pneumo, pericardial tamponade, hemothoraces, penetrating wounds to the chest, we should be going to a trauma center. Okay. Questions about chest injury. As I said, for all the chest injuries, you can assume high flow O2 is in play, okay? Titrate to O2 saturation of 95. All right, so this would be a really good time for us to put up our second poll question.
Mute. How are we doing? Ugh. All right, Captain. We got we didn't get a complete quorum, but we did get a good amount. So you have 57% uh, who felt like it's a high FEMA. So I didn't fool too many of you with this. Good for you. High FEMA is the definition. The definition of high FEMA is blood in the anterior chamber of the eye. Scleral hemorrhage is hemorrhage in the white of your eye, not the anterior chamber. And conjunctivitis is an inflammation of the conjunctive conjunctiva. So hyphema is the correct answer. Strong work. Over half of you got it. Nice job. All right. So let me just get out of this. Before he transitions to um, any questions, we're going over quiz eight. Are there any questions for him? Or we also have a little a couple housekeeping things. Any questions for the captain about tonight's material? Okay. Cool. So obviously, we're not going to get to finish tonight's lecture, um, which is supposed to be abdominal um, injuries. So we're going to push quiz nine off Tuesday. So we won't have quiz nine on Tuesday and I will finish um, abdominal injuries on Tuesday and then we'll launch into the rest of the material from there. Okay. Any other questions? Any other housekeeping issues, Captain? No, uh, the, um, what you call it, you should expect Grades to be posted sometime on Saturday, probably late afternoon. Um, you should expect um, it will be raw grades. It will not be adjusted, so don't panic. Um, the makeup for the test, 10 o'clock. If we don't, if you don't have to make up the test, you have the day off. Congratulations. Um, and love you. They, All right. And, they want to know if that means quiz nine will be on Thursday. You're killing me. I'll let you know on Tuesday. I'll let you know before Tuesday. Before Tuesday. I have to tinker with the syllabus. Let me see what we got. All right. So do we want to go over the extra credit questions for quiz eight? Have at it, Cap. All right. So extra credit. Question one, list and describe the three mechanisms of cerebrovascular accident. If you remember, we had talked about um, occlusive events and there are two types of occlusive events. There's thrombus and embolus. So thrombus, there's one, and it's a gradual narrowing of a cerebral blood vessel. So there's your, what is it and description. Number two, an embolus. 
An embolus is when a blood clot travels from the heart or the carotid artery and blocks the cerebral artery. So it's a traveling blood clot that gets stuck in that brain. The third mechanism is an aneurysm. And an aneurysm is a weakened cerebral artery that bursts. So those are the three mechanisms, thrombus, embolus, aneurysm, and their descriptions. Questions about question one. Okay. And I just want to be clear, Captain, you're not accepting signs and symptoms of a CVA. It's not what he's looking for in that question. I did not ask for signs a, and symptoms. So if you gave a sign and symptom, you're not going to get points for that. It's not what I asked. Question two, blast events involve several mechanisms causing injury. Describe these events. So we said the primary injury is the pressure wave caused by the explosion. The secondary injury is the shrapnel that is airborne and penetrates your body. And the tertiary injury is you being displaced by the bomb and landing on something and the injury caused by your being displaced and landing, not the pressure wave, that's primary. So those are the three, if you, if you threw in quaternary, meaning burns, contamination, that sort of thing, okay, that is one of the mechanisms, but, though, but the things that we were really looking for are the primary, secondary, and tertiary, and that is the pressure wave, shrapnel, and um, displacement. For those of you who put down body parts that were injured, also not what he was looking for. So I just want to tell you, if you put down, oh, this is what you could expect to see in the chest, not what he was looking for. Okay. We talked about the mechanism, mechanism. How would the presentations of pneumonia and asthma differ? Six points. So really what we're looking for is a comparison of the two, okay? So if you're going to tell me shortness of breath, no, both of them give you shortness of breath, okay? So if you wanted to start with breath sounds, pneumonia, ronchi, asthma, wheezing, that works. If you wanted to talk about skin, pneumonia, febrile, asthma, pale and cool, that works. If you wanted to talk about um, onset, asthma, rapid onset, pneumonia, gradual onset, that works. If you wanted to talk about um, productive cough, pneumonia, green sputum, asthma, clear sputum, that worked. So there were a lot of things that you could have used, that you could have crafted um, to differentiate between pneumonia and asthma, okay? Anything else on that, Captain? Um. The big one that we saw was the, um, you know, history compared to not history, you know, that pneumonia is curable, where asthma is not curable. Well, we would certainly take that, you know, um, past episodes trigger, right? One's an infectious disease, one has a trigger. So as long as we can differentiate among them, 
that's fine. Okay. And then the signs of a tricyclic antidepressant overdose. We're going to make a lot of people unhappy here, Captain. Well, you know, that's kind of what I'm, I'm here for. If you remember when I talked about tricyclic overdoses, I mentioned red as a beet, dry as a bone, blind as a bat, mad as a hatter, right? Blind as a bat. Did I say that one already? Yes. Red as a beet, dry. Hot, you missed hot, hot as a hair. Hot, hot as a hair. And dead as a doornail. And dead as a doornail. So we will take other things, like for instance, if you said altered mental status, well, that goes with mad as a hatter, we'll take that. Um, if you said flushed skin, red as a beet, okay, that, we'll, we'll take that, okay? So those are the classic signs of a tricyclic overdose. And right. dilated pupils, that's gonna be one you're gonna take as well, correct? We'll take yeah. dilated pupils for the blind as a bat. Okay, sound good? All right, any questions about anything else, ladies and gentlemen? No, nothing. All right, All right. Uh, enjoy your Saturday, stay home, stay safe.